Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add two new fellows to our team. We are thrilled to be adding these positions. We've got so much great content in the pipeline that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. I'm talking big time projects that are going to make a big impact on surgical education. We've got specialty oral board review, medical student education, digital education research, and a trauma surgery video atlas, just to name a few. We're looking for a couple of enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns and spearhead one of these major projects, not to mention help with the podcast, video, and other ongoing, exciting behind-the-knife goodness. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2022 and ending June 2024. Only residents beginning their two-year research time will be considered, and the residents' institutions and the mentor must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due May 25th. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Today we have our special xenotransplantation episode. I'm joined by Shanaz, and this is Kevin here. In January 2022, the University of Maryland Medical Center performed the world's first transplant involving a genetically modified animal heart. This historic surgery was done for Mr. Bennett, a critically ill 57-year-old patient with end-stage heart failure who is deemed ineligible for traditional transplant or an artificial heart pump. He had been hospitalized at Maryland Medical Center since October 2021 after presenting in cardiogenic shock and requiring ECMO. The FDA granted emergency authorization for the xenotransplantation through their compassionate use provision, which allows for the use of an experimental medical product when it is the only option available for a patient facing a life-threatening medical condition. Mr. Bennett elected to proceed with the transplant as his last shot at life, and his courage has allowed for the start of a new era in transplant surgery. Today, we are joined by Dr. Bartley Griffith and Dr. Mohammed Mohideen, the surgeons who led this historic transplant. Dr. Bartley Griffith is the Thomas E. and Alice Marie Hales Distinguished Professor in Transplant Surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Mohammed Mohideen is a professor of surgery also at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and established the cardiac xenotransplantation program with Dr. Griffith, the first one in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. All right. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, xenotransplantation was initially tried in the 1960s, but largely was abandoned in the 1980s after the case of Baby Faye. Baby Faye was an infant born with a fatal heart condition and received a baboon heart transplant, but she died 21 days after the procedure due to rejection. Can you provide an overview to our listeners regarding the medical advances since the 1980s that has allowed for Mr. Bennett's successful xenotransplantation? Sure. If you remember, the the baby Faye heart was from a baboon donor. And since then, you know, the, the baboons have not been chosen as the preferred donors because of several reasons. The most important reason was the transmission of disease from uh, from these animals. As you can remember, HIV uh, has shown to be transmitted from uh, non-human primates. So since that time, you know, we picked, or the field picked, 
pigs as the preferred donors for several reasons. The most important reason is that we now know how to modify the genetic makeup of those genes by either inserting or deleting several genes. These pigs are bred easily. They, they grow faster. The pig we used for Mr. Bennett, you know, it was a 100-kilogram pig, and Mr. Bennett weighed, uh, weighed about 85 kilograms. And that heart, although it did not match completely, but was close to Mr. Bennett's heart. Other reasons besides this one are, you know, we thought that pigs may have less ethical issues because they are consumed in food widely. You know, the breeding cycle is very fast. Within a year, you can get the, the size of pig and, and you can genetically modify it. So these were predominantly the reasons that we picked the pig. But before we, we started doing the genetic modifications, if you put a pig heart in a baboon, for example, which is a surrogate for human in experimental transplantation, you know, it rejects within minutes. So we found out that there were several carbohydrate antigens in the pigs that uh, for which human bodies have pre-existing antibodies, and then they attack those carbohydrate antigens and cause leakage of blood vessels and also thrombosis of those vessels and leading to graft rejection. So with that knowledge, we started to remove those genes. And then, then we found out several incompatibilities between the coagulation system, the complement regulation system between pigs and humans or pigs and baboons. So we started putting in some human genes to overcome those compatibilities. So with that, we came to this 10 gene pigs that we, the pig that we used in Mr. Bennett. And, and before that, we, the, during those testing, we showed uh, that we can prolong the graph significantly that gave us confidence that, you know, we can translate this into Mr. Bennett. Were there any significant differences in the surgical procedure with regards to transplanting the pig's heart in comparison to a human heart? Well, uh, I'll take that one. It's interesting that, that all of our non-human primate experience, you know, which has become extensive over five years, many, many, many experiments were performed. We basically took 20 to 30 kilogram recipient baboons and used usually about a 20, 25, maybe a little smaller on occasion donor animal. The porcine hearts, I don't know, weight to weight a little bigger. And so we tended to have a little bit of a, you know, bigger heart than a smaller heart for our experimentation. So we were placing that donor heart into a very normal animal, right? Who had not had heart failure. Well, it shouldn't be hard for your listeners to understand that in the face of heart failure, one would expect some change in the size and shape of the recipient heart, and not only the heart, but the areas for connection that must be made to the new heart. And those changes reflect high left atrial pressures, which cause left atrial enlargement. They cause usually increase in the pulmonary arterial size. And uh, the right atrium also will reflect right heart failure and, and uh, the KV will be quite large as well. So in our recipient, um, in the human case, we had really not anticipated the major differences between the non-human primate normal recipient and that from the heart transplant patient. 
And what we found in this particular patient, he had very high left atrial pressure. She had had previous surgery and a mitral valve repair, which hadn't held up. And so he had mitral valve regurgitation for years on top of heart failure. And so his upper chamber on the left side was quite enlarged. And as it grew big in circumference, it also rotated more to the lateral aspect of the left side of his chest. The right heart did you know, kind of a similar thing, enlarged and rotated towards the right. So the little pig heart, if you wish, that had normal atria had to kind of line up in the middle of both the host left atrium and the host right atrium. And so we had to kind of squeeze those atria, you know, to the middle, if you wish, and move the atria of the, of the donor um, pig more lateralized. Uh, we were able to make up differences in the circumference. It was a kind of a standard approach, you know, taking darts or, or pie-shaped pieces out of, the, out of the circumference to suture them smaller. But it was this lateralization that caused us more difficulty. And there were points in the surgery where there were some amongst us that wondered if we were actually going to get the connection made. I figured I'd probably get fired if I didn't, so I worked really hard to do it. So, Dr. Griffith, uh, I apologize for my naivety to heart transplant surgery. The You removed the recipient heart completely, right? Yeah, that's quite all right, Kevin. When we do an explant of the host heart, traditionally, the Shumway technique, you know, eons old now, included removing the ventricles from the upper chamber, which is the atria. Because Dr. Shumway and his, and his colleagues found early on that it was a far simpler operation to sew an atria onto a host atria as opposed to all four veins, you know, which would be individual anastomoses, which as a vascular surgeon, you can understand, could be complicated with stenosis or kinking or, you know, other technical issues. Much easier to make one single big anastomosis, almost like a Corel situation. And so in this particular situation, Instead of trying to hook the patient up to the superior vena cava and inferior vena cava, like we currently do in most human cases, and to the left atrium, we decided to use the old technique, which would be atria to atria, because we didn't think we could get the cava to come across. I hope that makes some sense to you. Absolutely. I'm glad I asked, because I did not understand that clearly. Thank you for explaining that, Dr. Griffith. That was actually very helpful, because I also did not understand that at all. In the post-operative period, how was Mr. Bennett's care any different because of his xenotransplantation? I read that he received an experimental drug that hasn't been used in humans yet. Yeah, we'll flip that to, to Mohammed. Yes, some of you know that uh, traditionally the, what we use in allotransplantation in human to human could not be used in this patient because of the xenotransplant rejection is predominantly mediated by B cells and the antibodies produced by those B cells, whereas the allograft rejection is predominantly T cell mediated. All the therapies that are used in allotransplantation uh, target the T cell mediated rejection. So in all our preclinical work, we have worked with an antibody that blocks the crosstalk between T and B cells, the co-stimulation, which is the signal two of the crosstalk. And we have used antibodies against the major molecules that are involved, either CD40 or the CD40 ligand. So we got the 
excellent results in, in our non-human primate models that antibody. So that was our major component of our immunosuppressive regimen. Cause of his pre-existing condition, with, because he was very sick to begin with, you, you know, we cannot use the heavy immunosuppression. Our regimen requires that we completely deplete their B cells and T cells before the transplantation. And since he, he was so sick, we, we could not do that. And so, so that was the major difference between immunosuppression that we use in, in our preclinical pre baboons and the human. And also the doses has to be adjusted based on his, his conditions, uh, the remaining immunosuppression, which included MMF and steroids. So, so that was the major, major change. If he would have had the full immunosuppression prior to surgery, do you think uh, he would have had a better outcome potentially? We don't know because his WBC count was very low to begin with, right? So, so that's why we cannot give drugs that will lower it further and, and subject him to infections, which will be another problem to deal with, right? So we think that, you know, the immunosuppression that even the, it was given at a lower uh, level, uh, but it was sufficient uh, to keep his heart going because until the end, his car, heart continued to contract with the full force. So I think that rejection did not play a major role in the demise of this patient. And Dr. Griffith, you agree, right? I don't know why he passed, to tell you the truth. We, we have a number of hypotheses. And what we know is he had good systolic function in his heart and his autopsy and his biopsies leading up to the, his death failed to show any classic signs of traditional rejection. So, wow. And he had, had no evidence of thrombosis. The heart wasn't normal at the end, but uh, we're trying to sort things out. And I think we will. We just need more time. We're doing extensive histologic evaluations that just take time. Thankfully, one of the reasons Mr. Bennett accepted the challenge of being the first was that uh, while he recognized the you know, realistic opportunity for him to survive was not great, he did understand that, that we took this as a serious next step in, in medicine and um, that we would take full advantage of every opportunity, including his consent for postmortem to learn what we could. So if you invite us back in three months, maybe we'll have more information for you. We'll be sure to follow up and see what you find from those histological evaluations. In addition to figuring out what happened with Mr. Bennett's heart, what do you think is the next obstacle overcome or the area of additional research to make xenotransplantation a reality? I'm a newcomer. I've only been doing this for five years. Let me ask the master what he thinks. Yes. I mean, although we have used like 10 genes that we think that are enough to, to overcome, you know, immediate uh, rejection process and is enough to, uh, for us to use the limited immunosuppression that we use for allotransplant and have the heart survive for a long period of time. But there's a lot to be learned uh, in humans uh, that we cannot learn from the, you know, the baboon experience. We don't know if there are certain other uh, antigen that will produce antibodies against and will cause rejection. You know, the, the, this requires more human transplants to understand. 
and also you know the immunosuppression what what is enough right uh, the, as you asked uh, in this patient our intention was not to give the same amount of immunosuppression because of his condition but uh, whether or not uh, that immunosuppression was required or not that remains to be seen right so next few obstacles will be you know the the, the right patient selection this patient also was on ECMO uh, artificial support, right? So for a long period of time, that caused uh, further complications in, in, in his condition. If we are able to pick a patient who, who's not on ECMO or has uh, uh, or other organs uh, are not affected, you know, maybe this the survival will be much better. Yeah, I have a question. Again, I'm, I'm not a cardiac surgeon, very limited kind of exposure, but that, that's what I was sort of wondering. What is the ideal next candidate? Uh, I was in a fellowship where we, the, the cardiac surgeons did a lot of LVADs to heart transplants. Is an LVAD, currently is an LVAD a, if you can't, if you're not eligible to get a heart transplant for whatever reason, can you still get an LVAD? I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the, because in my head, I would think maybe a patient with an LVAD to a, a xenotransplant. Uh, in your head, what would be the, the perfect patient? Because obviously they can't qualify for a, you know, human transplant, but what, what would sort of the next patient be um, that would be a candidate for this? Well, we, we talked a lot about this and, and we, we had a lot of questions about the first patient. Um, as Mohammed suggested, and I'll get to your, your specific question in a minute, but it requires a little preamble. You know, we didn't have any idea whether our expected routine success in the non-human primate laboratory would be repeatable in humans. We had made major assumptions. As you know, the baboon is different than the human immunity, and, and the 10-gene pig was designed for the human, actually, not, not for the, the baboon. So there, there, it was designed to take care of issues that we, frankly, couldn't test in the baboon. So we, we needed to test in the human, but couldn't understand well enough in the baboon alone. So, so we were not certain whether this would uh, work for 10 minutes, for an hour a day, for two years. I mean, honestly, we, we had no preconception of, of success. And that everybody has asked us, well, what would be successful? What, what, do you, what do you expect success to be? Certainly early after the surgery, the first few days, you know, people, well, what's a success? And we were, were answering congratulatory um, texts and emails when we reached the three-day mark you know, for people who follow this field. So just in general, the recipient of such an experiment, he was a lot less safe than the, you know, than John Glenn, of course, or the, or the Gregarian who went up first for the Soviets, you know, into, into space, you know, I had no idea what was going to happen um, in this gentleman. And he needed then to have absolutely no options. And he unfortunately had no options for multiple reasons. The most, the most important reason was that he had an established track record of a non-compliant medical history. We extensively interviewed uh, his family and his previous physicians. And um, he struck out on every reasonable scale of compliance. And in our center in transplantation, that's, that's just a, a firm stop. When we do patients who have demonstrated uh, noncompliance uh, in the past, we've had bad outcomes. They just need to be compliance. And 
when we tried to introduce other regional centers and in fact, two other national centers, um, large ones, with his history, they said, no thanks, we don't think we can accept him. So he had no option in terms of transplant. Well, why not a total artificial heart or a ventricular assist device? He was also having lots of arrhythmia, lots of ventricular tachycardia. And we know that ventricular assist device, the left-sided device, sometimes is penalized by that, more often than not. And putting in the ventricular assist device has about a 30% chance of decreasing that arrhythmia, but not certainly 100% chance. So he might have had an impaired outcome if we'd put the ventricular assist device in. And in fact, uh, he was so sick, having been on ECMO for over 45 days, not walking, he checked none of the boxes with respect to physical capability of receiving a safe ventricular assist device and surviving the post-operative care uh, to make it you know, part of our protocol. He, he also, with his history of noncompliance, also ran into trouble with our mechanical circuitry support group because they felt he wouldn't take care of his ventricular assist device either. And while that's not a human heart and we have more liberal application of the VADs versus the human hearts, there is still a standard. And so he failed to meet that standard. Now the total artificial heart, we no longer have on board at the University of Maryland. We gave it up about five or seven years ago. Uh, because it was rarely successful in our hands, and we're pretty good at it. I actually had one of the very biggest early clinical trials at Pittsburgh with the total artificial heart as a bridge to transplant. And we, we learned of its wonderful you know, opportunities and, and technological fun to work with, but translating it into humans as an outpatient um, kind of thing didn't get us too far, and we always wanted to use it as a bridge we didn't want to give this gentleman a mechanical support device that could only be bridge in our mind because he wouldn't qualify for the other side of it. We didn't want to handicap him with that. Plus, again, he wasn't compliant and he was too sick. So we need to find a patient, perhaps with restrictive heart disease, okay, who has a small ventricle who doesn't normally get a ventricular assist device because restrictive as opposed to dilated heart disease uh, is pretty much a no-fly for uh, ventricular assist devices. And most programs agree to that. So you need a fairly large left ventricle to hook your ventricular assist device into in order to have the blood draw into that device on a continuous basis. So restrictive heart disease, we always felt was a pretty important uh, uh, topic. And 50% of the patients in America that die with heart failure actually die with restrictive heart disease. The most common one is hypertension and left ventricular hypertrophy, right? So there is a large population of patients that we could include who couldn't necessarily, for whatever reason, qualify for transplant, age, associated illnesses, et cetera, but you know, couldn't have a VAD either. So we would put one of these pig hearts into the we're working, you know, to try to understand better what's a survivable level of disability on the transplant wait list such that we can snatch you, you know, uh, from the jaws of death, basically, but not have you so morbidly ill that your chances of benefiting from the application of this new transplant technology is worth the trouble. I do think we're going to learn, you know, and we're going to make some Bad decisions, maybe we'll make some wonderful decisions, just like we have in, in human heart transplantation to get the right niche. But we're not doing this as a niche play. 
we have to introduce a new therapy that's very risky, right? Life and death for which we have very limited experience. And I'm certain that in 20 years, uh, Dr. Mahoudin will be looking back at this and saying, I can't believe we did some of the things we did. I, I think that, you know, this will be an on-demand organ replacement that's biological. And that'll be batteries all the time, right? Our technological opportunities for new ventricular assist devices, even total heart, are growing in parallel. But you know, we, we certainly haven't supplanted human heart transplantation with a ventricular assist device, and we've been using them for what, since well, the VADs really came, came around about 1978 in the modern application of them, and they're still far from perfect, right? So yeah. give us a chance to grow xenotransplant, uh, and it will grow, but it won't be like tomorrow everybody gets a xenotransplant. And I think some of the wow factor and some of the hyperbole in the press, you know, would make lay public think, oh, good. Now we, we can just use pig hearts. Isn't that wonderful? But we're a long way off from that. Well, let me just say something. This was remarkable. Our nature is, is perhaps not to be shouting from the rooftop, right? Because we're, we're respectful of the fact that we lost a patient we got to know very well um, and that, you know, we're not promising success. But Dr. Mohadeen's research, which goes beyond 20 years, right? And my experience with this work, lifelong in terms of just, you know, end-stage heart disease. I mean, this was remarkable. When I visited this man, when, when Muhammad came into the, this man for six weeks could sit up and talk to us, hold conversation, hold his head up, sit in a chair, and he had a pig's heart. I mean, it's just amazing, right? And it was because the research was done to make critical gene edits, right? in an organism that separated from humans 80 million years ago. And, and it's just remarkable, right? So you've got to be able to kind of say, wow, this was the, the Model T. Imagine when you roll the Lexus out, you know, and whenever many years you do it, it's, it's going to happen. I think this has taken the glass ceiling and broken it. You know, people that would say, oh, it's around the corner, oh, it's always going to be around the corner. Well, let me tell you, we turned the corner with this case. And uh, for the for the doubters and the funders, I think we've turned their, their attention to it. And I think uh, rightfully so. Yeah, certainly groundbreaking. And, and that is exactly why we wanted to, to have you all on here to discuss this. So thank you for all the research and work you've put into this. To wrap things up, I just would like to hear maybe one takeaway or lesson learned from this whole experience of, um, of, of Mr. Bennett and, and this, uh, you know, breakthrough that happened. I mean, one thing that I would like to add is I would like to applaud the courage of this patient. You know, I mean, it, 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 this could not have been possible without the courage uh, that uh, Mr. Bennett showed to accept it and his will to live. And until the last day, he, he was he was not ready to go. You know, and 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 that helped uh, us uh, a lot. And you know, if it, if if it was not for some of the complications he had, you know, we were very very hopeful that you know um, that he will he will he will live for longer, at least as long as as our baboons did. The one thing that I've, I've learned from this is is how how brave this 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 person was. He in fact said that you know that. 
even if he doesn't live, that, uh, you know, this should help uh, moving the field forward. And his family is uh, still, you know, believes in that. So, so that, that would be my, you know, take from this. He was quite funny, actually, on his way into the operating room the morning of the of the Zeno transplant, you know, where, again, nobody knew whether he'd live a minute, an hour or a day. He looked at me right in the eye and he said, are you sure I can't have a human heart transplant? <laughs> uh, I'll never forget that. And he smiled at me and kind of winked at me, you know, but he was darn serious. He said, you sure you don't have one of those human hearts around here instead of this thing? Pretty good guy. Pretty good guy. Sure. Mr. Bennett's transplant was the first to demonstrate that a genetically modified animal heart can function like a human heart without immediate rejection. We again thank Mr. Bennett and his family for their courage to embark upon the unknown and allow medicine to reach a new scientific milestone. While further studies and trials need to be completed, we are so excited to see what xenotransplant brings to the medical field. Though the cause of death is not known at this time, there is investigation into figuring out how Mr. Bennett died. And so as soon as this is determined, we will invite Dr. Griffith and Dr. Mohadeen back on the podcast to discuss uh, how this impacts future research. Well, thank you guys again for uh, coming on Behind the Knife. And I would love to touch base again in the future about, you know, further things learned, whether from the histology you know, other advances in xenotransplant. This is quite exciting. And, and, and thank you for all the work you do in this. Great. Thank you for having us. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.